All righty. Good evening, everybody. Where's the mousey mouser? There we go. Uh, this evening, I'll be speaking to you about persecution. Um, as you know, uh, from when we read this day in Baptist history, uh, many people throughout history, ever since the teachings of Jesus have uh, faced persecution. Even Jesus himself uh, faced persecution, as we read in our text in Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> the definition of persecution is hostility and ill treatment, especially on the basis of ethnicity, religion, or political beliefs. When Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians, that is also a type of persecution. But I will be mainly speaking to you about the persecution of Christians throughout history. Since the start of his ministry, the Lord Jesus has faced persecution. In our text, Saul, who after his conversion becomes Paul, he um, was persecuting the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself. In verse 5, we see that Saul asks, Who art thou, Lord? He is asking, Are you the Lord? And Jesus answers him, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Saul lost his sight for three days, and this helped with Saul's conversion. In verse 17, it was read that Ananias put his hands on Saul, and he received his sight, and then was filled with the Holy Ghost after which he was baptized. The Apostle Paul declared in 2 Timothy verse three, or chapter 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Knowing this reality, we are able to be bold witnesses of Jesus with full assurance that the rewards far outweigh the risks. We may endure trials and tribulations when we are faithful to our responsibility to be witnesses of the Savior, but we can be certain that any hardships that we face will certainly be worth it <clears throat> if God is glorified and his kingdom is advanced. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> oh, yours of being an idiot and smoking. <clears throat> We must never lose sight of the fact that eternity is on the line and there are multitudes of lost people who need to hear the life-changing message of salvation through Christ. This was certainly the case for the apostles. For the remainder of their lives, they would be opposed, seized, arrested, persecuted, exiled, and even killed for their service to Christ. However, because of their faithfulness, the kingdom was advanced and the number of the church increased considerably. Later, Peter and John are arrested as a result of preaching Jesus to the crowd that gathered at Solomon's colonnade. This crowd had gathered in response to the miraculous healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate. When the religious leaders learned of the work of the apostles, they were furious and they persecuted the servants of Christ. 
In those days, the Sadducees were the leaders of the Jews, and the apostles' messages blatantly contradicted their stated beliefs. The Sadducees resented the fact that the apostles were teaching the people at all. They felt that this was their responsibility. The message that Peter and John preached also infuriated the captain of the temple. The priests, Sadducees, and the captain of the temple were not only upset that they were teaching, they were furious because of what they were teaching. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we read this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the same for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, there shall the ungodly, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Persecution is a strange thing. Why would God allow a person who believes in God, who really loves and follows God, to suffer persecution? This is the point of this passage, to discuss the question of persecution that the believer sometimes has to suffer. I want to challenge you to stand up against the fiery trials of persecution. We are first going to discuss to not be surprised that you are persecuted and have to suffer. Second, we will discuss to rejoice in persecution. Next, we will talk about not bringing persecution or suffering upon yourself. And lastly, on doing good and committing yourself to God. First, do not be surprised if you are persecuted and have to suffer. Believers often do not understand why they have to suffer. When they suffer, they are surprised and astonished and wonder why God does not protect them from the suffering and persecution. This is especially true when persecution is fiery and painful. As long as the believer is on the face of this earth, he will be called upon to face fiery trials. Being a genuine believer in a corrupt world is difficult. The world just cannot understand the demands of Christ for self-denial and discipline, and in particular, Christ's insistence that they give all they are and have to his cause. So, when a person really begins to live for Christ, the world often wants little to do with them. It may be next door, in the office, 
in school, in the government, or in a hundred other places. The genuine Christian is often avoided, mocked, neglected, questioned, mistreated, slandered, persecuted, imprisoned, and killed. Why does God allow the believer to suffer persecution? This verse tells us that he allows it for one very basic reason, to test, try, and to prove us. In Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Persecution measures our faith. Any person's faith can be measured by how much they are willing to sacrifice or bear for it. Suffering persecution for Christ shows how strong or weak our faith really is. Persecution proves our faith and attracts others to Christ. When we suffer and are persecuted, others can see the strength of Christ in us. They see that our faith in Christ is a living reality, and they are drawn to Christ, to his salvation, love, care, and strength. When others see us suffer for the hope of salvation and eternal life, the Holy Spirit uses our suffering to speak to the hearts of the persecutors and observers. He convicts them, and some eventually turn to Christ. Our faith is proven to be true, points to the peaceful attitude of suffering people to teach others about himself. When we suffer, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ was rejected by men because he proclaimed the righteousness and salvation of God. So when we are persecuted for living and proclaiming the righteousness and salvation of God, we are suffering for the same reason Christ did. We become identified with him, associated with him in the deepest devotion possible. To be so associated with Christ, the very son of God himself, is a great reason for joy and rejoicing. When we suffer, we will be greatly rewarded when Christ returns in glory. This is exactly what scripture demands time and time again. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, the Bible says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Where are the salt of the earth? But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick and giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one little shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do not bring on suffering and persecution upon yourself by breaking the law or doing evil things. If a person violates the laws or harms others, they deserve to suffer. This is not suffering for Christ's name. Suffering for Christ means that a person is persecuted because he is living for and proclaiming Christ. Therefore, a believer is not being <clears throat> does is not to bring suffering upon himself. The believer is not to suffer as a murderer. He is not to take the life of another person. In fact, he is never to become unjustly angry or to demean another person. The believer is not to suffer as a thief. He is not to steal, no matter how small the item is or how much they may need or even desire it. The believer is not to suffer as a busybody or troublemaker. No believer is to interfere in the life or affairs of anyone else, never in matters that do not concern them. Now, <clears throat> uh, keep on going, or excuse me, keep on doing good and commit yourself to God. The believer's suffering is in the will of God. He is either glorifying the name of Christ or purifying the life of the believer by suffering. Therefore, the believer must do two things. He must keep on doing good and he must commit himself to God. Uh, now I'm going to move ahead in time to the persecution of Baptists uh, in colonial America. The Baptists, having already experienced persecution in England, arrived in the New World um, generally hostile to the idea of civil authorities determining their religious beliefs and practices. The Baptists eventually compiled a liberty for Baptists during the Revolutionary Era, relied on 18th century Lutheran historian Johann Lorenz, von Mosheim to express the common Baptist view of the state of Christendom in his history of New England. Bacchus's history asserted that the early church's purity was perverted by an alteration that Christian ministers succeeded to the rights and privileges of the Jewish priesthood. Heathen philosophy was also called to interpret the scriptures to which they added in the 4th century under Constantine the use of temporal penalties and corporal tortures for the same end to promote of the interests of the church. No other issue so horrified the religious establishment, though, as the issue of baptism. The Puritans and Separatists held firmly to the practice of infant baptism as one sign of the con covenantal nature of the church. They saw in the ceremony a badge of the covenant, a sign as circumcision was for the Jews. As Cotton Matter put it, they did all agree with their brethren in Plymouth at this point, that the children of the faithful were church members with their parents and 
that their baptism was a real of was a seal of their being so in massachusetts puritans held to the validity of an established church and as anglicans in virginia they were determined to support the canons of the church of england including the 39 articles Article 27 stated, the baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institutions of Christ. Those that refused to comply with this article were spoken of as those who dare not submit their children to be baptized by their undertaking of godfathers and receive the cross as a dedicating badge of Christianity. This belief conflicted sharply with Baptist convictions. Isaac Backus, in his History of New England, offers a quote from John Robinson, which, citing scripture for each point, summarized the Baptist position on baptism. The, sacra <clears throat> the sacrament of baptism is to be administered only to such as are taught and made disciples. Baptism <clears throat> administered to any others is so far from investing them with any saintship in that estate, that as it makes guilty both the giver and the receiver of sacrilege, and is taking the God's taking of God's name in vain. In the book of Acts, chapter eight, verses thirty-six through thirty-eight, we read these words: "And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water.'" What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. We all know that baptism is an outward showing of an inward conversion. We know that baptizing does not save anyone. One must first be saved to be baptized. To be saved, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Infant baptism, we know, is not scriptural baptism. If you must first believe in Jesus to be baptized, then an, in an infant cannot be due to the fact they cannot believe anything due to their lack of knowledge of anything. Baptists in colonial America were jailed, beaten, fined, and in some cases run off from the towns they lived in because of their beliefs. If we move a little further uh, in Acts to chapter 16, verses 30 through 33 state, And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Every time someone is baptized in the Bible, they are saved first. As I said in my sermon months ago, anyone baptized without being saved only gets wet. When we baptize a person, we always say, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior? When they say yes, we then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 
Then the picture of the gospel of Jesus is illustrated in baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The view of Baptists, false pers- <coughs> the view of, <coughs> sorry, this is the view of Baptists. False perceptions also fanned the flames of suspicion when the Puritan or Anglican establishment looked at the Baptists. They often saw not simple dissenters, but dangerous incendiaries. The memory of Anabaptist excesses, uh, such as the Munster Rebellion of 1535 through 1536, were still recalled and projected onto the Baptists. In fact, Anabaptist was a name that continued to be applied to the Baptists, regardless of their efforts to distance themselves from the taint of Anabaptist excesses. The Baptists were probably held to be dangerous subversives or degenerate antinomians. Excuse me. Then, 1644 law banished Baptists from Massachusetts Bay Colony, stated, for as much as experience hath plentifully and often proved that since the first arising of the Anabaptists about a hundred years since, they have been the incendiaries of the commonwealths and the infectors of persons in main matters of religion and the troublers of churches. Baptists promptly answered such charges when given the opportunity. In 1680, John Russell, second pastor of the Baptist Church in Boston, sought to dispel the irrational opinions of Baptists in a tract entitled Some Considerable Passages Concerning the First Gathering and Further Progress of a Church of Christ in Gospel Order in Boston, in New England, commonly, though falsely, called by the name of Anabaptists. Russell's tract was a point-by-point refutation of the common charges laid at the feet of Baptists using simple logic. For example, Russell argues against the contention that Baptists were a threat to the church. We are charged to be underminers of the churches. This is also a great mistake. We never designed any such thing, but heartily desire and daily pray for the well-being, flourishing, and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Are you discouraged about the state of American politics? Tired of our uh, toxic incivility? If so, you're not alone, either today or in history. In 1786, George Washington wrote that he already feared for the new American nation just three years after the end of the American Revolution. American had gotten bogged down in petty squabbling over the consequences of independence. Some said a large republic like America would never survive. Some wanted to break up the nation into little republics. Others wanted to go back to having a king. The gloomy Washington wrote that our affairs are drawing rapidly to a crisis. We have probably had too good an opinion of human nature. Could people ever work together for the public good, he wondered? We must take human nature as we find it. Perfection falls not to the share of mortals, Washington mused. Washington and his Virginia colleague, James Madison knew they needed to forge a government that would better account for people's innate failings. 
That concern resulted in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. I find it strangely comforting to see how frustrated the founders got with politics. It is heartening to know that their frustration led to something good in the form of the Constitution. Sometimes we may think of the founding era as the golden age of American political history, with great leaders agreeing on great principles. But in some ways, their era was as riven by selfish feuding as our system is today. Whether or not we have leaders now who match up to a Washington or Madison is another question. Christians might especially feel tempted to write off politics in this election year, one that many observers regard as a particularly nasty and shallow. A Christian citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 reminds us we are pilgrims and sojourners not fully at home in this world. The political drama of 2016 will pass away, but God's kingdom never will. As this, all this is true, but we shouldn't write off politics completely. As, disheart, as disheartening as today's political environment may be, there remains an, importance pl- an important place for Christian political involvement. The history of certain Christians, especially Baptists, at the time of the American founding can give us guidance about how best to balance our earthly and heavenly citizenships. However bad our political problems might seem now, revolutionary era Baptists had it worse. American Christians are quick to throw around the word persecution today, but Baptists in revolutionary America knew exactly what that word meant because they did not wish to attend or financially support established churches of Virginia, Massachusetts, and other colonies, Baptists and other dissenters faced fines, confiscation of property, and imprisonment. Consider the case of Virginia Baptist preacher John Waller, whom friends once called Swearing Jack. Before his Christian conversion, Waller was a lawyer, a brawler, and a drunk. He once prosecuted a Baptist pastor for illegally preaching, but he could not shake the feeling that the prosecuted pastor had a quiet strength and peace that Waller did not have. Soon, Swearing Jack found himself attending the Baptist meetings where he learned that God would forgive his sins if he would repent and put his faith in Christ. Waller did so, and he received the believer's baptism. Almost immediately, the zealous Waller began preaching the gospel of the Baptists. That drew an unwanted attention. Waller got arrested for unlicensed preaching for the first time in 1768. Then, in 1771, an Anglican minister, the Caroline County Sheriff, and a posse of their supporters caught Waller preaching at a Baptist meeting. The Anglican minister reportedly jammed the butt end of a whip in Waller's mouth, and the posse dragged Waller out and horsewhipped him. Waller was left covered with blood and dust, but he cleaned himself up and went back into the meeting and started preaching again. There's somebody who's uh, fired up with Christ. 
Dozens of Baptist ministers in Virginia were jailed for illegal preaching right up until the outbreak of the American Revolution. Figures like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison opposed religious persecution on the basis of Enlightenment principles, but they witnessed the results of persecution firsthand in Virginia due to the mistreatment of Baptists. A young Madison, an Anglican himself, wrote in early 17, in the early 1770s about how much he deplored the hell-conceived principle of persecution. Once the American Revolution began, Baptists and others began advocating that Virginia drop its religious establishment or state-supported Anglican denomination. With the help from Madison, the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 affirmed that all citizens would enjoy free exercise of religion, a foundational concept that would appear 15 years later in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Baptists flooded the Virginia's legislator with petitions to help Madison and Jefferson bring about full religious freedom and end the state's connection to the Church of England. One of the Baptist pleas was a remarkable petition with 10,000 signatories representing about 10% of the entire white male population of Virginia. Jefferson recalled that the question brought on the severest contest in which I have never been engaged but the state was not ready to abandon its established church yet. Baptists warned state officials that if they expected Baptist support for the revolution, the persecution had to stop. And it did largely cease during the course of the war. The persecution, I'm sorry, uh, tax funding for the Anglican church also was suspended, but when the war concluded, supporters of the Church of England wanted to resume some kind of financial support. Patrick Henry, famous for Liberty or Death speech of 1775, was the leader of the establishment faction in Virginia. Henry did not approve of persecuting dissenters. He reportedly had defended some Baptists from prosecution as a county lawyer. But he believed that religion was so vital to the life of a free society that government should support it. This was the system that most Anglicans, now members of the Episcopal Church after the war, had grown up with, and the kind of church establishment that England has maintained through the present day. So Henry proposed a general assessment for religion, under which people would have to pay religious taxes, but they could designate the denomination to receive the funds. George Washington originally supported Henry's plan, thinking it was good a good compromise between establishment and terminating state support for religion entirely. Madison and the Baptists opposed the general assessment, however, and Madison penned his celebrated memorial and remonstrance in 1785 to combat the idea. Madison argued that pure pure Christianity would flourish without state support, as it had during the time of Christ. Baptists again petitioned the legislature to stop Henry's general assessment. One Baptist appeal declared that the holy author of our religion needs no such compulsive measures for the promotion of his cause. The popular response to Henry's proposal was overwhelmingly negative, so the legislature tabled the general assessment. 
The defeat of Henry's plan led to a reconsideration of Jefferson's bill for establishing religious freedom. Jefferson originally had proposed this bill in 1779. Now that Jefferson was away in Paris serving as an ambassador, Madison began promoting the bill again in 1786 based on the principle that Almighty God hath created the mind free. It argued against any kind of religious compulsion by the state, whether they be Baptists, heretics, or <clears throat> any oddball dissenter whatsoever. No one should suffer civil disadvantages because of their religious ideas. The legislature agreed, and the bill for establishing religious freedom passed. No one would have to attend an official state church or give compulsory religious taxes in Virginia anymore. Not that church and state would be entirely disconnected, even Jefferson often hosted church services in government buildings. But with the support of legions of Baptists, Virginia put religion on the freest footing. It was not coincidental that Virginia and the nation itself would see an enormous period of Christian growth over the next six decades during the America, <clears throat> during the era of the Second Great Awakening. But Baptists were not done yet. When Madison and the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention first issued the new Constitution in 1787, it did not include a Bill of Rights. Many Baptists in Virginia and elsewhere worried that a more powerful national government might infringe upon religious liberty or create a national denomination. Virginia Baptist leader John Leland warned that without safeguards for freedom, the people would be left futilely to hope that their leaders would never abuse their authority. Baptist reluctance helped to force Madison to go home to Virginia to advocate for the Constitution's ratification. In response to many complaints, Madison switched his original opposition to a Bill of Rights and promised that he would fight for one in the first Congress. Madison and Leland seemed to have met personally so Madison <clears throat> or so that Madison could give him these assurances. Soon Leland and most Virginia Baptists did come around to support the Constitution. Madison kept his promise, helping to pass the First Amendment's guarantee of free exercise of religion and its prohibition of an establishment of religion or national denomination. What we can learn from the Baptist experience in the Revolutionary <clears throat> Era. First, we should remember the intense persecution that they experienced in the colonial area, era. Sometimes the phrase separation of church and state has taken on negative connotations for Christians because of secular activists who take it to mean the entire removal of religion from public life. But to Baptists of the revolutionary era, the focus was getting the government out of religion and ending tax support for oppressive state churches. We can thank the Baptists and other critics of the Constitution for helping to secure religious liberty and the other precious guarantees of the Bill of Rights. Second, we should remember that the Baptists in revolutionary era overcame much more difficult political challenges than any Christians face in the U.S. today. Horrific persecution is, of course, a reality for many Christians elsewhere in the world. Some Christians are eager to speak of persecution for infractions, such as companies discouraging employees from saying Merry Christmas. This may be a violation of conscience, but 
it isn't the same as preachers facing jail time. We should be grateful for how our forebearers overcame terrible mistreatment and boldly engaged the political process in order to win religious liberty for coming generations. We might be discouraged about lowbrow political discourse and uninspiring candidates, but remember that revolutionary era Baptists had much bigger problems to deal with. Finally, the story of the Baptists of the revolutionary era should remind us that while hope, while our hope is not in politics, there are still political issues worth fighting for. Christians may disagree on the best pol policy responses, but major issues with moral and religious liberty Im implications stare us in the face. Marriage, abortion, and sexuality are the most obvious, but the list goes on. How do we balance enforcement of immigration law without being hateful toward the millions of undocumented immigrants already here? What should Christians do about modern-day slavery and sex trafficking? How do we respond to the vast problems in our criminal justice system? What should Christian parents do about their children's education? I suspect that our Baptist ancestors would remind us that whatever discouragement we feel about the state of politics, the gravity of these issues will not allow us to abandon politics. Sometimes progress will be slow in coming. The Baptists of England and America suffered almost under almost two centuries of persecution before the great triumphs of the 1780s. But the Baptist example shows us that a faithful political witness can bring about major changes in time if we do not lose heart. I now want to close with a passage from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast, you, cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. <clears throat> That's all I have for you for this evening. I hope you enjoyed it. I found it really interesting to find. Of course, we always read this day in Baptist history on Sundays, and it's uh, never short of uh, the amount of people that uh, stood by their Baptist beliefs and um, stood fast against persecution, against being beaten, being dragged out into the streets, uh, being mocked, all sorts of other um, things that they faced, uh, having their properties taken away and even being some of them being chased away from their homes. Um, but anyway, as uh, it said in that last bit of scripture that I read, God will reward you greatly for your um, the way that you uh, proclaim your Baptist religion. Uh, thank you very much for your attentiveness. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I've learned a lot from uh, looking up all of the different things um, about persecution uh, for Baptists and Christians around the world. Um, there's a whole lot more I could have gone through, um, getting into, um, the persecution of Christians around the world. As we know today in Muslim countries, um, uh, Christians are beheaded, um, and many other various things, uh, that they suffer 
for uh, standing by Christ. But um, anyway, we all should know that um, Jesus will always stand behind us when we uh, proclaim our faith in him. And uh, he will also give us great rewards in heaven for doing so. Okay, um, that's all I have for you for this evening. Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, thank you so much for leading me to this uh, uh, preaching. Thank you for leading me to this sermon. Thank you for the many things that I have learned through my sermons. Thank you for all of the wonderful things that you do for us. Thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for the good pleasure of your will. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for blessings to come. Also, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all those who teach from within. Thank you for the word, or thank you for your word. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the eyes to be able to read it with, eyes to be able to hear it with, and a mind to be able to understand it with. But thank you so, so much for the Lord Jesus who died on the cross, took all of our penalties on his own body on the tree so that we could spend an eternity with you and him in heaven and in whose precious holy name we always do pray. Amen.